Psalm 115, and I'll read just the first two verses. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? And our subject is what we are, we worship. Simple as that. The objects of worship and who we are. Now this uh, passage is about idolatry, the worship of idols. Who the psalmist is, is not said. Probably a psalm of David, but some people think it was a psalm of the prophet Isaiah, and some a psalm, a later psalm that is, by King Hezekiah. But it matters little, we're not told. The subject is interesting. It is about idol worship. And you might think, well, what has that got to do with us in the Western world today? There is not much idol worship in the Western world. Also, you may think, if you think in terms of the idols of old and the idols prominent more in the East, the making of statutes and symbols and objects of worship, in this case, the psalmist refers to things made of silver and gold. If you think that is all that is meant by idolatry, well, they were idols. But idolatry is ever-present. Whether it's idolatry of possessions, or whether it's idolatry of people, or whether it's idolatry of ideas, when values, and that form of idolatry is rampant in our society today. Everyone who has never been converted to God through Christ, who is not a believing Christian, you may not like me saying this, but every such person is by nature an idolater. You have to be an idolater. Well, it's easy to prove that human beings are worshipping beings. But every human being outside belief in Almighty God has earthly idols in some shape or form, whether objects or people or concepts or ideas. There are idols. And an idol, well, the, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the idol comes from a word which means something served. An idol is always served. The irony is today, people select idols which they think represent personal freedom, personal liberty, liberty to think as I wish, to have what I want, to be what I want, to determine who I am, and so on. Liberty. This is the great thing today. But every idol is something that you serve and you become subject to in your thinking, in your actions. But to introduce the subject, just look at these opening verses. Or verse 2, for example. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? That kind of taunt is what the pagan 
nations used to make towards Israel of old. Whenever Israel suffered a misfortune or great distress, which they often did because of their disobedience to God, according to the scripture, well, then the heathen would look on and say, where is your God now? But in this psalm, the psalmist is able to say, wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? They can't say this at the moment because something has happened which prevents that kind of scorn. What has happened? Well, evidently, there has been a time of great distress, a great difficulty, and uh, things have gone radically wrong at the hands of enemies, economically, and so on, through blight, through various things, and they haven't known what to do or where to turn. And then they have been subject to taunts. But that's past. Somehow that has been dispersed. And thanks is given to God for this. Not unto us, first one, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. The meaning is God has delivered us. We have regained some measure of prosperity and well-being in the nation. We cannot be scorned now. And the pagans cannot say, where is your God? So things are better. And it's this that leads the psalmist into speaking about idolatry. And it begins proper in verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. We worship the one true and living God, the psalmist says. He is invisible, he is incomprehensible, except by approaching him according to his revelation and what he lays down in his word in the scriptures. Our God is in the heavens. Their gods, by contrast in verse 4, verse 3 to verse 4, our God, their idols. Our God, their idols. Their idols are silver and gold. Our God isn't of silver and gold. He's infinite and eternal and in the heavens and knows all things and is all-powerful. Their idols, by complete contrast, are silver and gold. Mind you, they're expensive. And the ancients, and even now where idols are literally worshipped, they spend enormous sums on them. In olden times, half their living would be spent on idols. They were taxed sorely just to produce them. But the psalmist adds, the work of men's hands. So there's our God, eternal, above the skies, in the celestial realm, the everlasting God, their God, down here, fabricated by men, made, how vastly inferior. So the scene is set, the great, the staggering inferiority of idols. How are we going to define an idol? An idol, biblically, is anything which is a substitute, an alternative to the living God. 
the one true and living God. Anything which serves as a God with a small g in his place, anything which substitutes for him is an idol. Be it a statue, a shrine, a symbol, a possession, people make idols of possessions, a person who's over-celebrated and over-heroed, or an idea, a view, if it's worshipped, well then, it's an alternative to God. And the, the description follows. It's this description which is special for us this evening. Verse 5, and I read some of the descriptions. They're idols. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. Don't think that this is just a narrative of the obvious. That the psalmist is only describing what is so obvious for anyone to see. These words have meaning. They have mouths, but they speak not. This is significant, friends. The context is a God and worship. That's what the psalm is all about. Our gods, our God, singular, their gods, plural. Our God speaks. He speaks through the scriptures, through revelation, through holy men of old, who he authenticated and enabled so many of them to work miraculous works and wonderful things saying, here is a messenger of God. They were godly men. The scriptures came about over a period of time. They are self-authenticating, astonishingly accurate. So many different godly authors from so many different periods of time, and yet here's the scriptures, the word of God, the book of God, amazingly consistent from end to end. The book of Genesis at the beginning, the book of Job in the Old Testament, with exactly the same concepts and doctrines that are taught in Paul's sophisticated letter to the Romans in the New Testament. Astonishing. Certain cables running through the entire Bible the message of Christ, promised in the Old Testament, foretold. Incidentally, no other historical figure apart from Jesus Christ has ever been foretold in the history of the world. No other historical figure has ever been prophesied with such staggering accuracy with regard to his person, his character, his attributes, his conduct, his works, his actions, his teaching. So many times, not one other person has ever been foretold. Here's the Bible, foretold in the Old Testament, manifested and revealed in the New Testament. Absolutely self-consistent, self 
authenticating divine book like no other literature known to man. Dear friends, this has meaning. In this context, when the psalmist says, their idols have mouths, but they speak not, he says, what he means is, they have no message. They cannot tell you, explain what life is for, its origin, how it came about. They cannot explain to you human nature and what it's made of and how it works. They cannot explain to you the sinfulness of the human race, made so distinct, so much higher than the animals with such capacities and abilities and the power of reason and this strange, strange contradiction, a conscience, a knowledge of right and wrong, and yet a total inability to live according to those standards. How do you explain that? Only the Bible explains it. Only the true and living God explains man. They have mouths, they're idols, but they've nothing to say to you about how to improve, how to be a better person, how to have communion with God, how to go to heaven, how to be saved, what to do in the great situations of life, what the standards and values for living are, what is right or what is wrong? They have nothing to tell you on all these vast issues of life. And so it is with all gods. The current God is the God of self, allied to the God of liberty and freedom to do as you wish. The God of self is what is taught today in the last 30 years, it's come to the fore in Western society. Every young person in a place of education in Britain is, or almost every young person, is brainwashed with the god of self-identity, self-evaluation of everything. No external source can tell you what moral values are. You must know them by your inner instinct. Nobody can tell you who you are, whether you're male or female or a hundred grades in between. Only you can determine and declare that. You are God, the God of self. Your desires determine what is right, what is wrong, what you believe, what is so. Now, I'm sorry for a poor illustration but I read that most fish, not all, notable exceptions, but most fish have two cone sights. That is to say they're very poor at distinguishing between most colours. And most fish, with notable exceptions, especially the sharks and the whales I read, this isn't my subject, I can only tell you what I've read in times past. But most fish are very nearsighted. 
They cannot see distances. They depend upon a sense of smell if they have it, and movements to detect distances and sonic effects and so on. Very poor vision, very poor color distinction, some, but not much, very nearsighted. That's why most fish are not very good at avoiding predators. Supposing, and this is absurd, supposing you were to ask most of these fish so limited about the world, about the oceans, about the depths, supposing somehow you could get communication out of them, what would they tell you? Would it be accurate? Would it be complete? Of course not, because of their great limitations. They can't see things as you would see them if you had the fitness and the equipment to deep dive and look for yourself. You would be able to describe far, far more, of course. But this illustration, I think, helps because you are your own God today. Your powers of perception, your vision, as it were, and it's very limited. Just as the fish cannot see much of the ocean, let alone beyond the ocean, let alone the dry world, just as it cannot describe and see these things, you and I cannot perceive heavenly things and spiritual things and things of the soul unless God reveals them to us. But now there's a great anti-religious movement. Don't look outside yourself. We are all there is. We are autonomous. We are our own God. Now, dear friends, if you're overtaken by that, you're seriously disadvantaged. And I say this not to be critical of you, but to be sympathetic. I've been in this position too. Ignorant of anything about God. Ignorant of the state of my soul. Ignorant of how to be reconciled with him. Ignorant of heavenly and eternal things. Dear friends, we need more than what this world is giving us. Look to yourself. Who you think you are is who you are. What values appeal to you? They're the things that count. You do what you want. Well, naturally, this is drummed into you. The Bible frees us from this. This is true liberty. That's why Christ said, the truth shall make you free. His truth. His revealed explanation of all things and way of salvation. Look, time is going. Let me show you some of these things. They have mouths, but they speak not. They've no message for you. No vital information. No explanation. No information about God and the soul. Eyes have they, but they see not. This is significant. You bow down and worship that idol of silver and gold. It can't see you. Therefore, it cannot possibly care for you. 
Therefore, it's not interested in you. It can't see your state and condition. It can't see what your needs are. It can't set any affection upon you. It cannot relate to you. It's unaware of you. It has eyes, but they're utterly unseeing. You make an idol of your possessions, and you say, these will be my source of satisfaction. In effect, you're God, your substitute for God. These will be the things that I aim at, save for, revel in, enjoy. They can't see you. They're not interested in you. They're totally inanimate things. You make your God the God of self and the God of liberty. That's you. You can't see yourself. You haven't got an external sympathizer, one who loves you, one who will care for you, one who will help you. That's God. Only the true and living God can be your friend in heaven, can know your name and your life history and your sins that he must forgive and can determine what he will do for you and with you as he leads you through life and into eternal glory. You are unseen if you don't have the true and living God. Eyes have they, but they see not. Look, they have ears, but they hear not. You cannot appeal to them. You cannot interact with them. With the true and living God, you come to him and you pray. You find a quiet place. You ask him to forgive your sins. You put your trust in Christ, who is God who came and suffered and died to bear the punishment of sin on your behalf. Why did he do that? Because God is so holy, he cannot let you off your sin. And if God is going to express his love to you and put his arms around you and make you his child and be your God, he must bear the punishment of your sin. Sin must be punished and obliterated from God's moral universe by punishment. So Christ came in amazing love to suffer and to die for all who would trust in him and seek his pardon and his love. You can call upon him, friends. You can receive him. You can yield your life to him. He sees you and he hears you and he will respond. No shrine will respond. No pagan god. No possession. No hero that you worship, good as he might be at what he does, can see you or respond to you. No man-made concocted idea that the only God that matters is us, ourselves and our inclinations and opinions. Only the true and living God can see you and love you and save you and care for you. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. 
What's that about? Well, in the context of idolatry, don't you see? They make their silver and gold statues, and then what they do is they make food offerings with a wonderful aroma or savour. And the idea is that that god, any misfortune they experience, is because that god that they've made is angry with them. So to placate him and to secure his favour, they'll put food offerings in front of him and he will enjoy the smell and be favourable to them. So they'll buy his favour. Don't be foolish, says the psalmist. You've given them noses, but they smell not. They're not aware of your offering. They're not aware of you in any sense. There's nothing you can bring to them, nothing you can offer them. You come to the true and living God. You have to be saved by grace. You can't do anything to secure his favour because we're sinners. We have to be forgiven and made new by him and given new lives. But then we serve him and we direct our love to him. And he knows us and blesses us and assists us and develops us. But the idols, even the idols of ideas, they're not aware of you in any sense. Verse 7, I must come to conclusion soon, but listen to this. They have hands, but they handle not. Suppose you were to go to a shrine, a pagan shrine, but you're wounded somehow or other. You're cut, seriously, wounded. You go to your shrine. Well, that silver god, that golden god, be it a human form or an animal form, they don't have hands that can function. They can't dress your wound. They can't assist you. They can't hold you and help you and tend to you. Of course not, because their hands are completely immobile. Do you see the sense? This is a very sophisticated description. You have an idol in your home, possessions, your car, whatever. That vehicle doesn't have the power to tend you in your wounds and in your difficulties and in your needs. All it can do is respond to the accelerator and the steering wheel and go along the road. It can't help you intelligently. No idol on earth, no idea. Oh, my God is the God of liberty. My God is the God of natural selection. How can it help you? It has no hands. It has no eyes. It has no ears. It can't help you in your distress. It can't help you and forgive you in your sin. It can't relate you to God. These, this is very sophisticated material. All substitutes for God answer to the same descriptions. This isn't only about statues. And so it goes on. Feet have they, but they walk not. If you should break a leg 
and you're a mile away from your home and your gods, they won't run out to help you. Of course not, they're useless. No substitute for God, even an idea, the God of self, the God of liberty, can help you in all your needs. Neither speak they through their throat. Now this may sound completely mysterious. We've already had the mouth. They've no voice, no message. What does this mean? Well, don't you see, people made idols of silver and gold figures, not only representing human beings, human form, but also from animals, dogs, cats, all sorts of things. The most popular in ancient Egypt was a beetle. All kinds of things. But when you're thinking of dogs and cats, they don't speak, of course not. But if you've got a, a god in silver and it's a cat, will, will it purr? Will it make a noise through its throat? Or a dog? Will it kind of, in a friendly, kindly manner, woof at you? expressing its friendship. No, a dog can do that, a cat can do that, but a gold or silver idol cannot even express friendship in an animal-like manner or association. Can't do it. It's so useless. And you won't get a crumb of comfort from the god of self and self-determination the God of my truth, the God of my tastes and desires and opinions as to what is right and what is wrong. Oh, you say, I'm not religious. It's a shame. I feel for you. I don't have any time for those things. I believe in the autonomy of the human being. My instincts and ideas and my liberty and who I am and what I want. Well, you may have many, many powers and abilities and gifts and attributes, but they won't give you comfort or understanding or message or companionship or direction or real information about the things that matter most. It's all idolatry. There is only one God. There is no substitute for him. That is the message which comes through here. They that make them, and I'll close with this, verse 8. They that make them are like unto them. And that isn't just um, a jibe or an insult. It's a very profound comment. If you make idols out of silver and gold, and they are your gods. You make yourself as limited as those idols are because they give you no message, no information, no comfort, no help. You remain spiritually weak, ignorant, uninformed, powerless in your life, you're like, you're no better than your idol. You may have made the idol out of silver and gold, 
in my dress immensely expensively, designer clothes, doesn't help. You are as limited as your idol. If you say the autonomous me is the only God I acknowledge, no external God, then you are as limited as you. And your ideas and instincts as nothing beyond you. You are as weak as you. You are as ignorant as you. You are as cut off from God as you. You are your own God. That's the meaning. They that make them, whatever alternative for God you make, are like unto them, as is everyone that trusteth in them. But look, real feeling. Oh, Israel, oh, house of Aaron, ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Come to Christ. Acknowledge your sin. That's what we all must do. Acknowledge our sin, our rebellion, our autonomy, our independence, our insulting disregard of Almighty God, our Creator, our theft of the life He's given us and the abilities He's given us, our theft of these things to spend them on ourselves, our utter disrespect and alienation from Him. Tell Him you're a sinner. Acknowledge you deserve only His judgment. And thank him for his mercy and his love that sent Christ to be a sin-bearer for every single person who sincerely comes for mercy and for life. And you'll have all the things that idols, whatever their shape or form, can never give you. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, help us all we ask. Show us our situation. Show us our need. Show us that this call is a call of kindness and a call of mercy and a call of deliverance. Help us to understand and to trust in Christ. We ask it in his name for his sake. Amen.